Hey, everybody. Welcome to Live Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Raylan Sandin, and I'm really excited to let you know that Live Out Loud is now streaming on eight different podcast platforms to include Apple um, Podcasts, you guys, and Spotify, Google Cast, and uh, many more. So if you would go to whatever your favorite streaming uh, podcast um, platform is, and subscribe to the show. I would love that. There's also a new opportunity for you to support this podcast financially um, for whatever donation you would like to give um, to just kind of help get the word out, the message out, and promote the message of Live Out Loud. I am really excited to have Miss Dr. Sarah Williams with me today. You guys, I'm going to read this. Dr. Sarah is a licensed and board certified psychotherapist with a specialty in grief and trauma. She is a dynamic speaker, a subject matter expert. Dr. Sarah is known as the celebrity therapist for her clinical work and TV and media platforms. After overcoming her own challenges, Dr. Sarah is genuinely devoted to helping others heal from trauma, move forward and upward in life. To book Dr. Sarah for speaking engagements, teletherapy, or consultation, just send a message to her email at info at covenantwellness.org, and I'll share all of her other social media uh, tags and contacts with you in the show notes after this. Welcome, my friend. Thank you for joining us today. You are so welcome. I'm so excited to be here, living out loud. I love it. Yes, yes. I, I'd like to ask you, what does that mean when you hear live out loud? What does that mean to you? That means a lot like kind of like the title of my show, which is After Darkness. Live mm-hmm. out loud means just, just living unapologetically. Yeah. Not, re- recognizing you don't have to be perfect, yeah. that things in life happen, and that it's okay. Just yeah. be your authentic self. That's what live out loud means to be. I love that. And, and I absolutely echo that with you. Um, it is, you know, I've found that the more that I live authentically to who I am, it really calls in the people, um, you know, our tribe, as we talk about, right? It calls in people that really desire that in their own lives and or they're living it too. And I think it models uh, a way of being that we get that gets lost, you know, through childhood, somewhere along the way, we're told that we have to be or do for other people to make other people more comfortable, I guess, around us or with us. Yes. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I do agree. And I talk about that necessity for emotional assertiveness, yeah. to be able to assert yourself in a way that you feel balanced, because when you give up part of yourself to make other people feel comfortable, then that's not necessarily a comfortable setup for you. Amen. I like that emotional assertiveness. Uh, Talk to us more about that, particularly with members um, of, um, you know, within the black and indigenous and other uh, minority um, cultures and and communities, how would emotional assertiveness help them? Emotional assertiveness is helpful because we're trying to dispel the myth of the angry black man or the angry black woman that whenever we assert what are sometimes innate human rights, 
just mm -hmm. being able to go to the grocery store, to drive, to go for a jog, to bird watch, to do basic things, yeah. then that in some way, if there's some assertiveness, officer, what are my rights? Why did you pull me over? That's a basic right. That's a that's a natural question. And we should have the innate authority to do that. Also, emotional assertiveness can relate to recognizing and acknowledging how much these recent traumas are affecting us, mm -hmm. how much the the behaviors of other people or their lack of understanding can be so hurtful to communities of color. And I, I am genuinely appreciative, Raylene of your interest in this topic and allowing us to have this type of dialogue that it, it demonstrates that a, a white woman and a black woman can come together on this platform, have emotional assertiveness and no one's threatened. Right. No one's calling right. the police. Right. This is a healthy conversation. Exactly. Yeah. And we are making things better for the world. We're making life better and we need to have more opportunities for this. So please accept my gratitude to you for this platform. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it, it goes it goes from me to you. I, I'm just so grateful to have you here, absolutely. And to be able to give uh, space to this is an honor, really. And, and, and it's so needed. It's very critical, especially right now. What do you, what have you found in your personal experience and professionally are factors that would contribute to the stigmatization of emotional assertiveness, particularly within the black community and other minority communities toward, toward us as, as, white, as white people, you know, toward our whiteness or? What, what have I experienced that would maybe threaten my emotional assertiveness? Is that what you're asking or? So, so kind of two-pronged. What are your personal experiences and or professional experiences that, that from, from, the, uh, from the side of, indi of individuals who are white, right? Um, that when you are emotionally assertive, and you help empower other people to be emotionally assertive. What is it that lives within us or your um, observation of that, that creates then the stigmatization, the, the stereotyping of an angry black male or an angry black female and the threatening, you know, the threatening minority who is a threat to my existence or my walking my dog who's not on a leash and so now I'm going to call the cops on you because you're telling me. Yeah I think Raylene that it's historically if you look at the atrocities of slavery that we were an enslaved people for generations and I think that a lot of the behavior on the part of white America is based on fear. It's based on you did this to us, so now we're going to get back at you. That somehow we're walking around holding a grudge and that at any moment you are walking your dog without a leash and I'm bird watching, but you might be the, the collateral damage for my people to finally feel empowered and to get back all we lost in slavery. Yeah. I think a lot of that is just fear-based. Yeah. That meeting a black woman like myself that I offer intellectual but a fearless dialogue on topics that are sensitive 
I both I have both white friends, I have black friends, I have friends that are Asian, Hispanic. I'm fortunate in that way. Yeah. But I'll be honest with you, there are times that these conversations are sensitive and are difficult to have because yeah. we always worry about offending the other party. Nobody yeah. wants to offend anyone. And sometimes in our interest of being sensitive or so we think, mm -hmm. we're tolerating uh, underpinning that's undermining our ability to communicate and have open dialogue to make things better. Oh, you got, I mean, Mike drops all the way around with all of that, 100%. Uh, um, and the underpinnings, can you kind of speak to what some of those subtleties are? Because I think, uh, I think the connotation that we're indoctrinated with is that you know, topics on race, right? And racism and all of that are, are seen as overt, obvious expressions of actions and uh, aggression and uh, bigotry and all of that. But those subtleties, the underpinnings, that's where things really can get tricky, but we need to become more consciously aware of Conscious awareness is the word. It is the, the covert activities that is interfering with our progress. For instance, it's uh, the redlining in communities. Yeah. And even within the neighborhood I moved in, I'm one of few African-American families. Mm -hmm. And I moved into an area that's predominantly white. And I assume that, I assume that there was some concern or some fear upon me moving in, wondering, mm -hmm what type of neighbor am I going to be? Am I going to create some kind of problem of some kind just based on my race? Never mind the fact that I drive a Lexus. Never mind the fact that it has Dr. Sarah on the tag. Never mind the fact that I'm a private practice owner here in Chesapeake and one of the few, not just black women owners, but the few women business owners that owns my own practice outright. That I am a commissioner for the city of Chesapeake. I have to sit at the table where I'm not normally seen in order to encourage individuals not to have these covert discriminatory practices against other races. Yeah. My representation is done as a demonstration of saying we're all people. Yeah. We all come with our strengths and our weaknesses and we're all here alone. Because even for me on the other side of it, I could say, well, moving into an area that's predominantly white, are they going to suddenly burn crosses in my front yard? Right. <laughs> you know, is the rebel right. flag going to be hanging everywhere? Right. I have that natural concern. And yeah. it's, 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 it's life. And we're all learning here. Yeah. Where we are right now, and we're in the midst of a pandemic, we are finding ourselves with leadership that's in chaos and influx. Yeah. And young people are tired yeah what we are seeing now is just a cultural exhaustion from the overt and the covert it's the police brutality but then there was say for instance the quote unquote the karens that are not just out being filmed openly being racist these are the karens that maybe are in our school system yeah that young black males are sus suspended at a higher rate and expelled for the same infraction that a white student may not even get reprimanded for. Yeah. 
These are our covert things that we've had to deal with. Yeah. Unfair hiring practices. Yes. A lot of these things that have been underpinnings for where we are now. And I love that you highlight to the exhaustion of it all. Um, I, I get exhausted just in my own unlearning and educational process of all of this, right? And further diving into understanding so that I don't live in, in uh, white ignorance any longer um, because, because my educational system growing up failed me because it did not put contextual uh, framing into our history. It gave us a history of white men are the saviors, they're the civilizers, they're the adventurers, they're um, the, the risk takers, you know, and they're to be propped up as, as heroes and, and conquerors with pure, pure intent. And that simply is not the case. We, we were never given the, the brutal graphic truth of what our history is in this country and across the world. And so it's been, it has been exhausting. And it's been exhausting with the undercurrent and the undertone of confronting, um, you know, people in, in my uh, circle of relationships and, and they're people of, of diverse uh, color as well, male and female, particularly though that those that are white and share the same, you know, historical and educational um, indoctrination and all of that. And to expose the covert stuff that goes on. Uh, so I, I'm very cognizant of the fact that my own level of exhaustion and st stamina uh, Robin D'Angelo says in White Fragility, she calls it racial stamina, is very heightened and it's not, I don't have the endurance that, um, you know, yourself and my other brothers and sisters um, of color and minority have because you live it every day. And I, I don't say that my exhaustion uh, pre- um, how do I want to say this, Over, supersedes yours or anybody else's, but I, but I am aware of it because then it crystallizes that moment for me going, I'm just really diving deep into this, something that's been a passion of mine for a very long time, but I'm diving deeper into it. So I can only imagine, given that level that I'm experiencing what you experience every day. Yes. Let me share a story with you, if I may. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I grew up in a community in Florida. Um, my parents worked very hard. They had a technical school education, which is somewhat college educated for African Americans in yeah. the sixties. Yeah. Um, my mother uh, owned a cleaning service, worked very hard. Mm -hmm. My father was a disabled veteran. Mm -hmm. They saw the potential in my education and what I needed. And the public school 
and my district was just not able to provide me what I needed. So they sent me to a private school that was 97% white, meaning I was one of three black students in the entire school. Yeah. <laughs> I was a fourth or fifth grader. I think I was fourth grade. And for a fundraiser, this private Catholic school, which was supposed to be a religious school, for mm -hmm. a fundraiser, had a slave trade, a mock slave trade for a fundraiser, where individuals dressed up as slaves with black paint and raggedy clothing and ropes around their neck and some chains. And they were brought on a stage and they were sold for a certain amount of money. And that person would be the other person's slave for the day. And myself and two other students had to stand in a crowd of a hundred other students all laughing and cheering. And we had to endure that. And no one complained. No one raised an eyebrow. No one seemed to say this is insensitive. It was a joke and it was a mockery. And I got the signal, I got the message that mm -hmm. for me to survive, no one really cares how I feel, that I need to get that message, that no one cares mm -hmm. how you feel, that white people do not care how you feel, that their behavior is to be tolerated right. if you want to succeed. Right. And we said nothing. And I carried that memory with me for many years. And I've only recently been able to share it because the hurt, yeah. the internal rage, the confusion. Yeah. And I was angry at everyone, my parents included. How could you put me in such an environment? Right. I don't care it was a good education. That probably changed the fiber of how I saw mm. a population of people. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, even though I've been in those environments, no one outwardly called me an N-word. No one outwardly harassed me. Right. But there was an internalized message that I received yeah. that we have Black students in this school. How would they feel? Even if it was only one student, mm -hmm. how would that individual feel if we have such a, an event? Right. And it was okay. And... Like I said, recently, I have disclosed the pain that I felt and I carried it all my life. Yeah. And it did make me a better person in some ways, but it also created a lot of depression and anxiety when it came to that aspect of my life. Yeah. Because I thought to myself, I'm not safe. Right. I'm a child here. At one point, if they're making a mockery of this atrocity, could we go back to that? Right. Could we be treated in such a way again? Right. When I saw the events of George Floyd, mm -hmm. what do you think that said to me? <laughs> what message did I get? That yes, you can't be safe. 
I'm a mother of a black son. Ahmaud Aubrey was gunned down for taking a walk or a jog. Yeah. To cope with the sheltering in, my son is a good son. He only asked to take a run maybe twice a day to get out the extra energy. That's all he asked for. Mm -hmm. And right after the shooting of Ahmad Avery, that next morning, he said, Mom, I'm getting ready to go for a run. And the expression on my face, mm -hmm. and when he saw that, he said, that's okay, I won't go. And he doesn't feel safe running in his own neighborhood. Yeah. A father that was 20 years Navy officer, Naval officer, yeah. 15 years with the government civil service, a mother that's a PhD. Right. We live in homes of million dollar and half million dollar homes. That's our neighborhood. Right. And he doesn't feel safe taking a jog. Right. Raylene, we're going backwards. Yeah. There's a place for you and what you're doing. Yes, we're off topic right now, but you must hear this. This is the topic, my friend. I'm here for There it. is a place for what you are doing. Your voice needs to be loud and fearless. You need to represent the mothers like me that in 2020 are afraid for their black son to walk down the street, not committing a crime, just going to buy a box of Skittles, yeah. just happen to be wearing a hoodie. Yeah. My son owns no hoodies. I had spent a fortune on Gap hoodies. <laughs> I threw them away. Yeah. I did not even put them in a Goodwill because I didn't want another black child to end up with a hoodie. This is our reality, Ray, Raylene. Yes, this is our reality. So yeah. when you, we worry about covert over right. now because we're going backwards. Right. So this was about maybe in the 70s yeah. when I was a little kid yeah. and now we are in 2020 and I will be 52 this year. Right. I used to be able to ride my bike home from school. Mm -hmm. I lived in a neighborhood that maybe we had really the, the, those concerns mm -hmm. and this was in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. I walked to the mall. I went through the mall. I walked and went places with my friends. Yeah. We went to the beach. We yeah. traveled. Do you know that I literally do not want my children to go to the mall or the store without me? Right. They will soon have driver's license. Mm -hmm. What if they're pulled over? <laughs> God forbid they reach for something. Right. And the officer is nervous mm -hmm. and shoots my child. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. These conversations have to be had. Mm -hmm. This is as raw and as out loud mm -hmm. as it's going to get. Mm -hmm. I didn't choose this platform. It chose me. 
I didn't choose to have this voice. It chose me. There's a movement now. And we are all part of it. And this is what's different. The people of color were on the front line. MLK, Coretta Scott, John Lewis. These individuals were on the front line. Now we got our Raylene's. We got our moms in yellow. Okay. I have so many individuals that are from different races that are reaching out to me and asking me, what can I do? I'm a part of the autism community. Mm. As we speak, one of our moms is not sleeping because her son was arrested for a car accident. He was given 50 years for a car accident. He has autism spectrum. His name is Matthew Russian, R-U-S-H-I-N. We are begging the governor to please give him leniency. He has a brain aneurysm or a swelling in his brain from the accident that's not being treated. He has autism spectrum. Right. He was recently physically assaulted in this prison. This is one of our children that had a car accident. Did you watch the news in South Carolina with the young man that killed those individuals that, in the black church? Yes. And he walked out unarmed without a scratch in handcuffs, right. was treated to Burger King and then taken to jail. Yes, and protected while he's in jail, too. And is under protective custody. Yes, yes. Because he's so, white. Because he's white. Yeah. So we don't like this. We, it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But if we don't say it, there are some people that they really don't know the internal reality. Right. They think this is a professional woman. She's got two kids that are doing well. They're right. going to early college. Right. And now with all the social unrest, right. I don't feel comfortable right. sending them to college. And they have worked so hard to overcome so much. Yeah. And I know that it's tragically unfair. Yeah. But I am crying out to the Lord every day and give me strength mm -hmm. to protect them so that when they leave my home, mm -hmm. they will be safe. And I'm not worried about failing out. I'm not worried about drugs. <laughs> right. I'm not worried about that stuff. Right. I'm worried about them just taking a run and in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. We're walking across campus. Yeah. Calling the police for help right. and end up dead. Right. The policeman has the wrong address. Look at Brianna Taylor. Yes. And they still haven't been arrested. No. So it's, yes, we are in a very difficult spot mm -hmm. as women. Mm -hmm. And as mothers, mm -hmm. 
as advocates. Mm -hmm. We are mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. So it's like being on a tightrope yep. where I'm professional and I've got to help other people foster their way, their, their way through. Right. And then I also have to contend with my own anxiety and fears that are real. Very real. Not imagined, yes. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I don't like anxiety. Right. I like to travel and go about my life. And we should be comfortable. We should not be prisoners in our home. We mm -hmm. should not be worried if a police officer follows us, whatever gets behind us. Be concerned we should feel more safe with police presence. Right. And I am never going to say that all police are bad. I am not that person. Mm -hmm. right. But I will say that there is a culture mm -hmm. of insensitive, insensitivity mm -hmm. to people of color mm -hmm. and individuals with disability. Mm -hmm. I want you to do a survey of how many police officers are trained to do sign language. Oh. There was a black man that was in Chicago yeah. that was deaf and he was signing to the officer and they saw that as a threat and they shot him and he's dead. They didn't even recognize sign language. And I have my associate's degree is in sign language. I'm a sign language interpreter. Um, that's my early training. Yeah, and it's, it's disturbing. That I think that that's a huge uh, rationale and, and, and point of, of, um, of uh, great um, debate right now surrounding, you know, the topic of defund the police. Defunding the police is not taking money yeah. away from police departments. It's, it's taking the overfunding and funneling it to social programs, to individuals who are capable and trained and aware and, and can spot these needs, you know, those who are on the autism spectrum, they know that. Those who are having mental health challenges, they know that and they know how to address. They know how to, they know how to connect with that individual and, and help and intervene. People who um, have their communication is all in their hands, you know, who are um, deaf and hard of hearing. And they know how to connect with them as well and communicate with them. And people from other languages and, and that sort of thing. And they have more cultural sensitivity awareness and training and education and knowledge um, you know the police can't be everything for everyone and that's what we have that's what it's come to this law and order mentality has come to um, putting everything in the hands of of police and that's exhausting for them too i have a background in law enforcement as well i was a dispatcher um, at a very busy and large sheriff's office and was also a volunteer victim advocate for a couple of years and it's very um, it's a very stressful position um, and rightfully so because in most instances you're seeing the worst of humanity but but you also are interacting with people that it's very difficult to navigate because you don't know where they're coming from or what's going on so it's very helpful to have people who that's their expertise, you know, we need to use that. I, I really want to 
thank you and honor you for sharing what you've just shared. Um, I, as a mother and a woman, I absolutely echo that. And I, I have thought long and hard, you know, I, I hear the story of Botham Jean, right? Sitting in his apartment eating ice yes. cream. Yes. And hear his mother and his, his brother and sister crying out for him and his father and Ahmad Aubrey and his mom and just a man running on a, on a beautiful day in a beautiful neighborhood, Brianna Taylor and her mother and her family crying out for justice for her. You know, Tamir Rice just playing with a gun in a park, not even being, not even being, having anything. A threat to anyone. To him. A he threat was a kid. He was a kid, exactly. And the officer just got out of the car and immediately shot him, didn't even say anything. Trayvon Martin can't go to the store and get Skittles, like you said, and, and walk right. through his own neighborhood. Own neighborhood. And his he was hunted neighborhood. down by George Zimmerman. Yes, like an animal. And then to have those tags, you know, being called dogs and thugs and all of these, you know, monikers and all of that. I just, when it's human beings who have families, who have mothers, who have fathers, hearing George Floyd crying out for his mother catches me I every felt time. That. I did too. I felt that because you can see your own child in oh. that. That was, that was a spirit, that was by spiritual design. Amen. That was a spiritual design. Yes. Because if he had used profanity or whatever, we would have understood that he's angry, he's upset, he's hurt, he's, you know, he's probably dying. Sure. But most of us, when we are at that moment, we call for our mother. Yeah. And I, I just, I cannot imagine how his family felt and it's almost merciful that his mother was already deceased I, I, because I, I, if she had you. to witness that oh <laughs> and see that yeah and knowing the way society is now and getting ready on the verge of turning a young man out into the world yeah um there have been recently several events where police officers have intentionally kneeled on the necks of unsuspecting citizens yeah. just as a message. A, a message to say we are going to do what we want to do to your yes. people. Yes. It takes me still back to that time when I was in fourth or fifth grade where I have no voice. Okay. But this is different now. The entire world is watching. Is watching. Everyone's paying attention. Yeah. Everyone has a smartphone. Because think about how many of these events occurred before we had this option to record and show evidence right. of this behavior. Yeah, and you know, I have never, I've never had to have conversations with my children that involved uh, being overtly and intentionally submissive to people in authority. 
like debasingly so. I've never had to have conversations with my girls about, mm, you probably shouldn't wear that hoodie. They love right. it. Never had to even think. But I do. Twice. Right. I've never had to think twice about my kids going out and playing and walking in our neighborhood and walking home from school or anything like that. I mean, other than the fact that, you know, I thought, well, if it's too far, I'm going to go pick them up because, you know, they might they kidnapped or, or something. But Dangerous. Someone right. could rob them. Right. You're not thinking the very people that are there to protect us could potentially be the predators. And I have never had to ever have conversations with them or think about them, toward them, or even about myself in terms of my own skin color. And that is to me foundational because my skin conveys deep meaning and impact upon the lives of you, your family, your loved ones, uh, other friends and family that are in my circle right. as well, it, it communicates. And it goes so far into the fact that I admire my children. They're better at this than me. Mm. That in spite of everything, mm. they still see the character of a person first. They do not look at a person's skin color and make assumptions about them. Right. And how they manage that incredible feat, knowing what they have gone through, especially my son being yeah. black yeah. and having a disability is incredible to me. Yeah. And I try my best to remind them every day how much I admire them. Amen. Yeah. You guys, we're back with Dr. Sarah, and Dr. Sarah, you were, um, we had a little bit of technical difficulties, but we're back online, and that's the world we're living in right now, so we're going to roll yeah. with it, and it's all good. You had said something very profound, so many things that were very profound. One thing um, that you had said, too, um, is that this, this awakening that we're under right now, I have chills. Uh, and the, the backdrop of the pandemic and then seeing George Floyd and all of that nationally televised and hearing him cry out for his mother. And you mentioned that that was spiritually and divinely appointed, that that was divinely des designed. Can you mm -hmm. share more about that? Because when you spoke so movingly and openly, um, and I, and I appreciate that and I honor that. And I, I, I hope that the space that I hold here um, is one for you to be seen and heard and uh, visible in your experiences as well, because your experiences teach me and teach everyone listening. Being Correct. that fourth grader, that eight-year-old little girl, eight, nine-year-old little girl, you and I are same age, and I just cannot, you know, I had my own messages when I was that old, but I cannot imagine the violence of that message that you received that day. Mm -hmm. And then having to 
navigate that. So I know I asked you several, so we'll get to that, but talk to us more about that spiritually designed moment of all of this in the context that we're in right now. George Floyd's tragedy was communicated to us in a way that we can no longer separate that this is a black film. That when he cried out for his mother, it spoke to the hearts of anyone that is a mother or nurtures mm -hmm. across all cultural, socioeconomic statuses, race, ethnicity, across the board. Yeah. Protests began in one state, transcended throughout the U.S., yeah. crossed the borders. Yeah. George Floyd's little girl said, my daddy changed the world. He did. He has. And that's one thing that we can connect with, being a mama. Yes. And you don't have to give birth to nurture. You don't have to give birth to be a mother. Yeah. You can take care of children. You can nurture children, mm -hmm. nurture yourself. Mm -hmm. There are volunteers that serve anything that correlates with that caring and that nurturing and that it was a it was a symbol of please help me yeah yeah because as we know as children and our babies i don't care if they're on the playground they're having a good time mm -hmm. if someone falls or something mm -hmm. ah, first bye. thing First thing, yep. Yes, right, and you got to kiss it, and you got to make yes. the pain go away. So Hi. George Floyd was speaking to our world and saying, we need the pain to go away. Yes. You mentioned the, the Wall of Mothers in Portland, and I believe that that's, yeah. a, that's an outcropping and, and a from, from that, you know, and I just recently had a had a big surgery in January, and uh, the first thing that I wanted, I called my mom and I said, "Can you be there for me?" And she mm -hmm. came because I wanted to know that she she was going to be the last face that I saw before the surgery and the first face that I saw coming out. Yeah, she was the first face that I saw when I came into this world. And it'll be the last one if, if something happened. Hopefully. You want yeah. your mom. Yeah, 100%. And, and, and yeah. And yeah. people with spiritual people. Yes. And for George Floyd, he was calling his mother because he was basically saying, I'm ready to see you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm ready to see you. My mother's deceased. My father's also deceased. Mm. So I would imagine if I knew my life was over, yeah. I would be begging, okay, let me see them and feel that presence again, right. Right. that security that you can only get yeah. from a mom. Receive me, 
Yeah. Yes. And in our times of pain, and I became a mother late in life, a natural mother. I mean, I mothered my um, youngest nephews and my my little beautiful nieces right. uh, the best that I could when I would babysit. But I know when I was pregnant and I was in my late 30s, almost 40 years old, and I was going through a lot, emotional, and I would call my mother every day. Yeah. And I wanted her to be here when the twins came. Yeah. And it was very important for her to be here with me. Now, she may not, may not have been there the entire time I was in labor, right. but she did. She was at least nearby. Yeah. And I, I needed that. Yeah. Just knowing she was in town, yeah. it gave me so much comfort. Yeah. And we are a nation of hurting. And it, yeah. is, it is going across every boundary of what we originally saw as security because the pandemic is making us medically fragile. Healthy people can have the coronavirus and be on a ventilator within a week. Yep. So our medical security has gone away. Yes. Our security and belief system in law enforcement are being protected. So our safetyness and security, if we look at Maslow's hierarchy. Yep. Everything that we envision in terms of security and safety that, that leads to us being balanced human beings is being threatened. Is being threatened, yep. Love, nurturing, safety, secureness, yep. having a comfortable, safe dwelling to live in, it's yep. all being threatened because now we're economically insecure. Yes. Everything. Yep. It's forcing us to go back to the, that thing that we still have that inner voice, that security, that spirituality that keeps us grounded, mm -hmm. that allows us to move through challenges, mm -hmm. that makes us resilient when none of it makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's all we have. Right. You mentioned Oregon. And it was brought to my attention that not too long ago, Blacks couldn't even buy property or live in Oregon legally. Wow. And here you look at right. yeah. Oregon being the hotbed. Yes. <laughs> Not Atlanta. <laughs> right, right. Not DC. Right. Yes. And Oregon is the epicenter for right. rise for justice and equality. Yes. Right. 100%. This is yeah. this is what we are made of when mm -hmm. we look at African people and how we had the ability to survive. Oh. It was based on a spiritual essence. It was a trusting um, belief, a practice, trusting other people that put us in the situation of being slaves. Right, right. And our ancestors passed down to us spiritual strengths and practices. Yes. We've got an inner resilience that most races don't understand. Amen. I did a podcast last week and the guests continued to ask me, how did you survive that? How did you do Right. How? It's like it's some yeah. magic formula and I can't take credit for that. Yeah. All I know is that when I get through these tough times, like we are, we are going to see the other side of this. I don't know how, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But when we see the other side to this, Raylene, Mm -hmm. Our ancestors, both black and white, mm -hmm. 
when we prevail this and we we go we get through this mm -hmm. and we prosper yes. spiritually from it yep. the ancestors say yes <laughs> i agree yes that's what we needed yes sister you wasted all this time yeah. on those stupid cell phones right <laughs> and facebook but here's why when here's, i needed you to pray <laughs> yeah yeah i think of uh i think of my angela's um beautiful beautiful words in i believe it's called grandmothers where she talks about standing on the shoulders of mm -hmm. the ten thousand, right of our ancestors i have chills and and you know a lot of this that we're seeing too we talk about ancestral trauma and generational stuff and and um we cannot remove that out of the equation because you're absolutely right we are spiritual beings having the human experience and i i think too of resma menikim's uh book and i'm reading that now called my grandmother's hands mm -hmm. and and how healing um can come from that and as we step out and step forward in faith and in cries of of justice and equality and support of one another and we step out and and we are the change that we wish to see then our ancestors are healed as well from from their trauma yes. and from from the afflictions and inflictions that they've caused and created and that have been suffered and um surrendered to and and it is absolutely something that cannot be overemphasized which is the i think that as as a you know being being white we have lost our cultural underpinnings we have lost our spiritual underpinnings we have believed the lie that protestant beliefs of superiority and versus inferiority and patriarchal um, kind of mantras are are the salvation for our souls and and in there then becomes the messaging that humanity is lost that the divinity that lives within the human is lost but i look to um african culture i look to um black american culture i look to asian culture i look to uh latinx culture i look to um other other cultures across the globe that have very strong spiritual connected native native culture as well you know connective areas of sacredness and holiness a level of holiness in their life that they carry with them that i believe and see that we as white individuals have lost that I was just telling a girlfriend of mine yesterday that her life is holy and and she needs to walk as the sacred ground that it is mm -hmm. upon her own life and and I as well and and this these messages were coming and I said to her I said girl I'm just getting this right now I don't even know where the heck this is coming from 
And we were both just falling at the magnitude of that message. But I really see that we as white people have lost that. We've willingly traded our souls for a lie, for the lie that says that we are the answer to the world, that we hold truth, that we hold power, that we hold uh, information and education, medical knowledge, scientific knowledge, you know, any, that we are the center. And we and have sold our souls to that belief. Yes. And what you've received in that wisdom, in that moment, except now the difference between having power and being empowered. Yes. Yes, because white America had been so focused on having power and conquering mm -hmm. and being recognized as the first, even if it was a lie. Yes. And perpetuating this generationally. Yes. To maintain the belief system that this is how we stay in control. This is how we maintain power. Mm -hmm. We have to suppress another group of people, whether they be Native American, Black, Latino, yeah. uh, Hispanic, or whatever race, yeah. anything other than white to maintain control yes. and to feel balanced. Mm -hmm. That explains mm -hmm. the psychotic neuroticism you see that's mm -hmm. playing out in law enforcement. Yes. It I is fear-based. Yes. And there is very, there are very few individuals white that want to admit that but for you to come to that place yes, you had to first relinquish yes and leave yourself vulnerable mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you're part of the movement the movement chose you you didn't choose it it chose you you are so right the about that lady sitting in arizona <laughs> minding her own business right? Yeah. Your life would have been just fine. Yes. With all this African stuff being introduced to you. And now, oh. now you have a responsibility. Amen. Because you're not going to rest and you're not going to sit quiet and you seem a little bit stubborn and probably very hard headed. So I can, I'm very fearful of anybody that tries to disagree with you at this point. You, you've known me for like a hot five minutes and no, you've known me longer than that, but you I know, know, you know me. I know enough of you. I know you've known me five minutes. Wait a yes. minute. Yes. But you know me at the soul level. You know me. That is absolutely. I know. I'm glad I'm on your side. I'll put it that way. I would not want to find you out and be on the other side. I'm glad I'm your friend. Oh, I am yeah. so delighted that you like me. <laughs> well, I don't, want, I don't want to ever find out. Girl. And you know what, Rayleigh? I'm the same way. Yeah, I'm, I'm soft-spoken. I'm loving. Yes. I'm kind. I'm generous. Yes. I'm all that. Yes. But when wrong is wrong, I have to speak to that. 
that is my assignment. Yes. God gave me that. He mm. gave me that out of his mm -hmm. authority. And when mm. I don't speak up, yeah. I am in disobedience and my life is Ooh. gone. Well, you know, you got that powerful out. message when you were that fourth grader, right? And you were stunned and shocked into silence. But that was, was really stirred. Looking around like, does like, anybody see what's wrong with this? Exactly. And I had to hold a lot of stuff because yeah. Yeah. my father had medical problems. Right. And I didn't want to stress him. Right. I knew they were sacrificing to send me to this school. Right. And my mother was working too hard to right. be worried with such things. Right. But I'll tell you something. Mm. Mm. They made me who I am because when my parents started struggling financially, they knew that I was intelligent enough that I could, I could work or do different jobs. And back then, you would get part-time jobs really young to help out. Yep. So my parents thought that it could be something I could do at the school, maybe help the teacher, do chalkboard, papers, something yeah. after school to help offset some of the cost of my tuition. Yeah. And rather than seeing me for my talent and what I could offer them, yeah. they gave me the job as the janitor. Wow. So during the day I went to school with everybody and then after school, they had me vacuuming and mm. wiping and dusting, and my parents stopped it. When they found out what I was doing, mm -hmm. they didn't know exactly initially because I didn't tell them. I was glad to be helping out. Right. But do you know how demeaning that could have been for me for a while? Yeah. And I, I saw it as I was helping my parents. I didn't care what anybody else said. Mm -hmm. But my parents saw the hidden message in that. Mm -hmm. I love that. And, they and the idea of it is, no, we're not sending her here to think less of herself. We're sending her here so she knows her value. Oh, did they know about the um, fundraising event in school? I think I told my mother when I was an adult. Wow. So they didn't even know when you were younger. What I was afraid they would, I was afraid they would make me leave. Sure. And for, for what it's worth, I needed that education. Right. So it was a trade-off. Yeah. It's just like what Blacks go oh. through now when they're at Harvard or anywhere right. else. <laughs> I mean, I went to a, a white university and I, I dealt with a lot of stuff, okay? And I put up with it because it's what I needed to do to get where I wanted to go. Right. So I just was young enough to recognize that these people are very small-minded people. Right. And I'm going to get my education and I'm going to get away from here. And that's exactly what I did. And I think that to me is, is a, the loudest message of, of emotional assertiveness that you're sharing because... We, you know, and for me, I see the indignation and the, the um, disingenuousness of that and have always been that kid who advocated and spoke up for the right for people to exist in the same spaces 
that I do or that other people do. Uh, and, and it, you know, it's, it is very much about empowering people's voices to speak up. And if, as we join our voices collectively together, uh, that makes noise and it, and it reaches the people that it needs to reach. You can't help but hear it. Um, I just, the, the vision that your, your existence in, in any educational setting or any setting for, for that matter, uh, has to be, has to be weighed against, you know, putting up with dealing mm -hmm. with code switching, dealing with, you know, right. right? Uh, the covert and, and, um, and over to messages of, of uh, inferiority or of questioning or, you know, having someone explain your thoughts to you or to other people about what you said, like being your personal translator, interpreter, whatever, and things like that. And I just, I think too, for, for me and for um, some of my friends too, we we're so impassioned um, at making sure that we have, well, there are more than enough tables, but making room at all of those tables. Um, but we also don't want to overstep and become that same, you know, the same thing that we're speaking against. And we don't want to overstep and, and speak on your behalf or on, on a brother's behalf, you know, where their voice would do. So what can you share with us in terms of ensuring that we're, that we're amplifying, but that we're not, that we're holding the right space and that we're not over speaking, I guess. Does that make sense? I think asking and being open to listening. And I noticed that if there are, let's just give an example. If there's a, the table you mentioned, the seats yeah. at the table. Yeah. There are 10 seats at the table. As long as at least one is being occupied by an African-American, then the ideal is the status quo has been met. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. That Preach. has to change. Preach it. Yes. And I grow tired of being... <laughs> the token black. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is yes. sitting there and you or you view me as the token black. Right. Is because we have right. an African American here. Right. And a a right. Right. And we a, need to right. And a woman. Right. We got <laughs> we got them both. Yeah. We don't need yeah. anything else. We don't need right. any more trouble coming in here. We got a woman. Right. We got, and she's a black woman. So we got two for one. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And oh. we don't, we're, we're good. Yeah. Nope. That, that's what has to change. Right. Because my experience and my voice may be different from mm -hmm. another black woman mm -hmm. who grew up differently, who has different opinions, that brings different talent. I'm not all knowing. Right. And I can, we can all learn. Yes. Yeah. 
men have different experiences from women. A black man is going to have a different opinion and different resources to draw from yeah. about right. that experience. Right. And I can't speak for the entire, I, and I've been in situations like that. I worked at the hospital once and they had need for diversity committee or something. And I was the black person sitting there. And one day I just said, you know what? I'm tired of speaking for the entire black consciousness. I do not represent someone who grew up in an urban neighborhood who had used public assistance. I don't know that life. I can't speak for those people. Right. I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood with two parents in the household. My dad didn't run off and leave me. Right. I don't know that life. Right. But there are experiences I do have. Right. As a black person trying to navigate the navigate the educational system, trying to get yeah. jobs and trying to be treated fairly. Yeah. Um, I'm a widow parent, so yeah. I'm considered a single parent. Now I can speak to those things, but don't ask me to speak yeah. for every black woman. Right. In the in that and that's period. In Africa and everywhere. They expect right. just because it's a black person there that I can even speak for a person that's African. Right. I can't do that. I'm oh. African American. So our experiences are different. So we when we say diversity in the seats at the table, we're talking representation all the way around. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you the the I think one of the largest reasons why we as white people believe that, well, you're in the room, so we've included you. Well, first of all, thank you um, for that patronage. Wow, that's mm -hmm. great, right? That mentality, but it's also the mentality that we have been indoctrinated and, and, and believe, and it's the conditioning, is real here that we speak for normative human experience because we believe that we are the standard again it goes to that the white centric view of things right and man when when you start to unravel all of this my human experience doesn't speak for your human experience and you just said yours doesn't speak for your sisters or your brothers and you know, our, our cousins and our, and our community members and all of this stuff, right? So we've got to get that. That's a huge part of the unraveling for us in our white agenda is that we then assume that, okay, so we have, we have the token black person, we have the token Asian American person, we have the token native, you know, and the token um, Latina or Latino, right? Um, and the token, uh, you know, gay or lesbian, you know, bi, queer, transgender, right, at the table. So we're good. We got the melting pot. We've got the mixing pot. But it's because we believe that then still we have the comfortability and the accessibility to claim our experiences as an individual. But for your community and, and other minority communities and other groups, we want to lump. We see a monolith, right? We see 
one person's experience as the collective all and we label it and we stereotype it but we're individuals that to me it's so uh well it's it's narcissistic it's self-centered and it's self-serving it's very convenient for us to claim individuality and then when we speak about um, or ask for for your presence when we you know are okay with inviting your presence in right then we we demand that you're you're the voice you're the one that we prop up this mentality that there's so many people out there propping up you know black voices to fit their agenda the white agenda right and they'll they'll prop up the Ben Carson's and the Candace whatever faces sorry that was disrespectful and they are considered black yeah. representation yeah the assumption is because because they're fitting DNA wise and, and and ethnicity that they appear to be yes representative of African Americans I mean look mm -hmm. Trump elected Omarosa to be on yeah. his task force right. to reach black America and mm -hmm didn't realize that most black Americans do not support her. Do not they support her. And, and she's also right, relate to her. Right. I can't say they don't like her because that's not very nice. Right. I don't know her personally, right. but her words and her interest mm -hmm. and what she perceived as important mm -hmm. was detached from that's that's like comparing her to a Michelle Obama kind right. of right Michelle right. Obama's experience is different because mm -hmm. she's educated and she mm -hmm. had humble beginnings she had working parents that just wanted to see her do better in life mm -hmm. so she has a full range of mm -hmm. ability to relate to different people mm -hmm. Omarosa I don't even really know her background I don't know much about her mm -hmm other than her attachment to Donald Trump. Right. So there is a disconnect there in how could she speak to me because I'm not seeing anything in her story that I can relate to. Right. We look for that. It, ben Carson, outside of him being a surgeon and having a medical background, right. I, I have little or no connection to him. Right. Um, again, not saying anything's negative about them, but we make those types of incorrect assumptions if we just go by someone's skin color. It's same as if we had a need to hire yes. diversity to work for our company. Is that truly diversity? Right. If you know you hire an individual and they may have been adopted and raised by white parents. Right. They right. have no black friends. Right. Right. They never went to school with black people. Right. Other than being right. born black, they have no connection to the black community. It happens. It does happen. And, you know, I know Omarosa did eventually she came out and she she has spoken very plainly and clearly that he um, he and his administration are very um, tied to racist racist policies and, and upholding that and all of that. Um, but yes, I absolutely agree with you. And and a lot of those a lot of that positioning is all to further white agenda in holding up 
members of those communities who support white talking points. And we need to, we need to get out of ourselves. We need to get out of our own way and really start to embrace and understand the, the collective human experience from all lenses, from all points of view, from all points of perception and perceptible awareness, because it's not just white centrality that dictates that. And, and we've missed out on a lot. We have, we are not, we are the, we are the poorer for it. We really are. And, uh, and it's not too late. It, no. it is not too late. Yep. Uh, there's value in the movement. Whenever, whatever stop you get on the train, whatever, at whatever stop <laughs> you get on the train, as long as you're there, yeah. You can get on at the beginning and be there yeah. the whole ride, or you can get on at the end as long as there's support. And right. that's what our community needs. And don't wait to jump on the train, right, until you feel like you know enough. Because, listen, you can jump on the train, and, and we can study, and we can get together, and we can learn and, and grow and interact and connect while we're on that train all at the same time. We don't have to wait until we're we're better equipped or we're knowledgeable. Um, one of the things I really encourage too is, you know, it's not these discussions, there are a place and time for data and talking points and stats and all of that kind of stuff. But, but primarily it's about this, it's about a relationship. It's about rapport. It's about honesty. It's about vulnerability and openness and being willing to, to listen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know you wanted to talk to about um, challenges with the pandemic, you know, and mental, mental health awareness. And, you know, also in that comes substance abuse and, and those sorts of coping mechanisms and issues. And um, I wanted to give you that opportunity to share because that's critical at this time too. I think that because the pandemic in itself is a national crisis, and then we add to the fact that just like every other illness, whether it be diabetes, HIV, AIDS, mm -hmm. uh, gun violence, that is disproportionately affecting people of color. Yes. And if you add that individuals whom also may be suffering with a uh, comorbidity comorbidity of mm -hmm. anxiety, depression, or some other type of existing mental health issue, then just the sheer circumstances and the anxiety uh, and the ambiguity of our future mm -hmm. is predisposing us to so much more possible death yeah. as, it relate, as it relates to coronavirus. Yeah. So there has been a spike in suicides. Mm -hmm. And people mm -hmm. didn't die from being infected with the virus. They died from the social isolation mm -hmm. or from concerns about economic issues. Maybe they were laid off. Mm -hmm. But it's a catch-22 because 
you can't just force openings and everybody just go back to work and we resume life as normal mm -hmm. when that will put us more at risk. Right. So you have to incorporate some type of mindfulness in order to manage that. And you have to work within your resources. You have to figure out what works for you. Mm -hmm. Example, for me, I and anybody that likes scented oils or candles or things like that, set up a place in your home. You don't work in that place. You don't do social media in that place. It's away from the family and it's a private area that you can light your candles, only inspirational reading material. Mm -hmm. And when you feel those anxious thoughts creeping in, you kind of steal away from everyone and you allow yourself a chance to kind of, process, yeah. decompress yeah. before trying to handle and contend. Mothers are now, mothers and fathers are really stretched to the end because the kids are home from school. Yes. I don't feel safe with my children returning to school. So I'm looking at serious lifestyle modifications yeah. to accommodate that because their health is a priority to me over yeah. politics or any financial data that's necessary mm -hmm. for the money to follow the child. I don't care about that. What I care about is my children living and being able to see their high school graduation yep. in a healthy state. So mm -hmm. I, I'm able to make those modifications. So given the parental stress, you have to have that time to balance. You have to allow yourself healthy boundaries with everybody, there needs to be specified periods of time. That's your downtime. It could be 20 minutes, 30 minutes or whatever. You put a note on the door, do not knock unless you are on fire. If you're not <laughs> on fire, no one's breaking in the house. Right. <laughs> Nobody's bleeding. Right. <laughs> Don't knock. Right. If you knock, that's an automatic, automatic timeout for you. Right. Or something. <laughs> And you take time. You can't go to the spa. You can't go to the hair salon. You can't go to the pedicure. Yeah. You can walk in your neighborhood. You can jog, yeah. uh, order an exercise equipment, getting a bicycle. Yeah. Zoom support meetings are good, not just for business, but just girlfriend time, your favorite drink, mm -hmm. and sit around and just chat, mm -hmm. talking, having those social interactions. Yeah. Also, turning the news off watching just enough of what you need to stay abreast and then turn it off because yeah. it becomes a part of your internal mental dialogue in itself. And everything we watch now is depressing. There's really no good news going on right now, anywhere, yeah. wherever. So it's very hard to find something that's uplifting. So you've got to find it within yourself. I've been ordering a lot of books from Amazon and catching up on my reading yeah. and I own Covenant Way Wellness, which is an affiliate of Covenant Way Clinical Counseling. Mm -hmm. And I have implemented what's known as movement focus, emotion focused movement therapy, mm. so that we incorporate group therapy, which I provide as a licensed therapist mm -hmm. with a yoga instructor. So we have that opportunity to process and go mm -hmm. through stress management techniques and depression, mm -hmm. anxiety. And then we have a yoga time to release some of those emotions throughout the body 
and really start healing and focusing. Mm -hmm. And um, just to give a correction, the email is info at covenantwaywellness.org. It's info at covenantwaywellness.org. And anyone who's interested in the wellness types of things, just to put that in there, I'm sure we'll go over social media stuff at the end, but it just was appropriate time to mention that there are therapists that everybody's off in teletherapy right now, which brings me to the other point. Yeah. Even if you feel like you're okay, (laughs) it's nothing wrong with an emotional (laughs) tune-up. You have insurance, you have the employee assistance program, you have military one source. Um, A lot of therapists are offering free therapy services. Um, I think that yes. there's even government programs for individuals to get mental health yes. assistance. Mental health is mm-hmm. you have to take care of yourself. Yeah. Most of your therapists now are seeing a therapist yes. just so we can stay on top of things. So that ought to give a clear, clear signal that yeah. therapy's okay. Yes. Headspace and calm and insight timer and several other uh, meditation apps well-known meditation apps are also right. offering their meditation apps for free right now mm-hmm. too so those are fantastic i use those on the regular also love them i love mindfulness can you kind of describe for us the process of mindfulness what that looks like um some people might think oh i have do I have to get special equipment or how can I do that at home? How can I do that during my day? What does that look like to take a mindfulness well, moment? I kind of try to emphasize that. Like you have a seat somewhere in a calming area. Uh, you practice deep breathing. You listen to your heart rate. You make sure you try to close your eyes. Incorporate essential oils if you can tolerate it. Um, darkness is very calming or soothing lights. Um, I have the plug-in where you can get the neck massages. You can put around your neck and really relieve, release that tension. Mindfulness is like comparing a freight train to laying on the beach. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you've ever been riding on a freight train, it's a different experience from, and I don't mean a passenger train. I mean the kind that you're, <laughs> in the back with the luggage and you're getting bumped around and you don't feel very good and mm-hmm. when yeah. is this going to be over okay right. that's anti-mindfulness mm-hmm. how you should feel is like you've been on a brief vacation mm. yeah yeah i love that and we you guys mindfulness too is that screensaver that we have on the computer right and it our our minds are constantly working and focused so busy all the time and rushing and running and thinking and worrying and living in the past living in the future you know mindfulness enables us to center and ground into the present moment and push that pause button right and just Mm -hmm. ah take that relaxation for individuals who aren't as savvy or kind of maybe have some beliefs around meditation, um, can you speak to what that looks like and, and how, how we can take uh, and empower ourselves through meditation as well? Well, if you can think of it, your prayer 
Oh, you're on mute. There we go. Okay. Say that again. Okay. Sorry. Your prayers are a form of meditation, essentially. Mm -hmm. So, thankfully, as Christians, we don't have to separate the two. Mm -hmm. Even I speak to getting therapy throughout the Bible. Mm -hmm. There's the introduction to the concept of therapy when we talk about restoring our soul. Yeah. Yeah. And having joy and having peace and having harmony, things mm -hmm. that bring us back to that. Yeah. We're not designed to be in trauma and anxious mm -hmm. and worried and depressed and sad and melancholy and angry. Right. That's not our natural design. Right. I love that. Yeah, because there's a lot of stigma around therapy and um you know, meditation and some holistic practices, um, there's a lot of stigma around that. And some, a lot of it is fear-based and misunderstanding and um, attributing, attributing things that, that don't really exist to that. So what are ways to that you have seen um, within the mental health community that offer um, more access, wider, broader access to communities that historically do kind of stigmatize uh, therapy. I think just the, the influx of black therapists now and clinicians of color is very important. Mm -hmm. And our communities making and normalizing mental health. Yeah. 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 Because for so many years, we <clears throat> we have, there have been so much trauma and so much handing down of an offloading of that pain from that, that um, we're seeing the effects and the impacts of it in our society. Like you mentioned, gun violence and, and all of that too. Um, and just even the current uh, atmosphere. Um, but I join you in the hopefulness. I join you in the optimism and in the knowledge and knowing that we too will and can rise out of this and we are better um, than our worst days. And yes. Love transcends it all. Yes, it does. Yeah. What do you have a favorite quote that you would like to share with us to close or um, uh, another uh, parting truth bomb that uh, you haven't shared yet to kind of get our spirits uplifted? There's always this big old expectation of me and it boils down to something really simple. Yeah. Love yourself. Mm. Yeah. Simple as that. Because if you love yourself, everything will fall into place. Amen. Wow. Thank you for that. I mean, the Bible even says that love others as we love ourselves, right? Right. From loving ourselves, we will be able to love other That's people. Right. You can't love anybody else if you don't love yourself. Amen. Dr. Sarah, my friend, sister, thank you so much for being you here. You're so welcome. I enjoyed it immensely. Me too. Me too. It's been an honor and a privilege. And I know that we'll have more conversations around this. I, I hope that um, you would 
you would join me again. Um, the door is always open and uh, I'm so honored to know you and have your presence in my life. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, you guys. Again, uh, listen and subscribe. Support us where you, where you listen. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Casts, and uh, many other platforms. So thank you again for listening to Live Out Loud. I'm your host, Raylan Singman. Thanks, Dr. Sarah. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you.